we have been, over the last number of weeks, focused on Advent themes. Each candle that gets lit of this wreath points to something. It connects in a collective way to the great longing of God's people. And what we are finding is that in the giving of Jesus, that which had been longed for has been given, but the goodness of Jesus having been given teaches God's people to continue to long for even more because a day is coming when the salvation that is here, the kingdom that is here, will be completed, will be completed, will be consummated. And so we are like those who waited. We are like those who are waiting. And over the last number of weeks, what we have looked at is that Jesus brought with him, his birth brought with him expectation. The first week we looked at hope, the concept of hope, and I would say that the point there is that Jesus brings an expectation of future good, that there is something to look forward to, that you can grasp forward, that even as you focus on the reality of the present, what is lacking or what has been lost, Jesus brings expectation of future good, future justice, future righteousness, In other words, the hope of Advent is that it won't always be like this. And last week we considered peace, the idea that what had been given, the integrity of the world, the integrity of of our morality, our righteousness had been shattered in the fall, that we have dealt with the consequences of this, but Jesus brings with him a future expectation of wholeness, of peace, that his ministry, that what he brings by his spirit begins to collect what has been shattered and scattered and puts it back together so that this sense that you have, the delight that you have in wholeness, of integrity, of wanting to be a full person head to toe, The Christmas brings with it the expectation that in the future you will be whole. In other words, this feeling of being in different parts and not quite grasping it and seeing dimly will be gone. It won't always be like this. And this morning we focus on joy. Because Jesus brings expectation that there is a through line to all of history, and that this through line is not only a what of history or a where. So hope might be like, well, where is this going? And what is it bringing us to? Wholeness. But that there is a through line of history that has an affect attached to it. That history is leading somewhere, and it's leading to a great what, but there is a how it will be experienced built in to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus brings with him expectation of future gladness. These are not incidental terms. When the future is described, and we read in Psalm 96, for instance, that the trees of the forest will sing for joy, the fields will exalt, the sea will roar. When the heavens are told to be glad, this is not a coincidence of their personality. It could not just as easily have been a kingdom of very reasonable stoic people. My desire this morning is to show you that there is a through line of history that is pointing not only somewhere and to a great what, but that our design, the DNA of our being, is built on an affection, a growing experience of future gladness. 
In other words, all that is experienced now with blandness, sometimes you even know it. You, you sense in yourself that there's more goodness, more taste, more life in the thing that you're experiencing, but you just can't get there. You're in a perma state of coffee-burned tongue. You have before you a feast in the world. At least you sense that somewhere in your soul, but it's all rice cakes. Day after day after day. And Jesus brings an expectation of future gladness. So we don't just barely make it. And we don't just get somewhere good, and then find out that holiness is a kind of sour experience. But instead, we make it with gladness. We make it with a restored rejoicing. And so what I might say to you this morning is that we are as near to heaven, we are as near to the promise of Christmas when we sing jingle bells as we are when we sing Silent Night. Not putting them in competition with one another. That'd be a big mistake. Because churches love to make the holiness equals dour kind of mistake. They're not in competition. The desire, I believe, to see in Jesus is that these things link together in a kind of beauty that is unimagined. The beauty of joy. So that is my job this morning. To convince you of a few things. There's going to be some points that I'm going to make concerning joy, and I hope that as we come out of this morning together, having read and considered Scripture, that we will have some level of agreement on these three premises. So here's a couple of premises to consider. The first premise is this, that Christmas teaches us, Advent teaches us, that joy is the baseline affect. And by that I mean, the, you could call it an emotion, but it's so much more. It's not less, but it's so much more. Affect. It's a, a temperament, but it's so much more. Affect. It's a way of being, a personality, but it's so much more. And I'm going to make the point that joy is the baseline affect of the world. It's going to be one premise that we're going to try to attack together. Joy is the baseline experience, you might say, You see, it's hard to pick the right word because we're going to not get it right or there'll be some ditch to fall into. But joy is the baseline affect of the world. That's premise number one. Premise number two, that joy, when experienced, at least on this side of heaven, so far as I can tell, is a visit of some deeper reality. It's a visit of some goodness or exaltation or delight that exists permanently elsewhere in a source And so therefore, joy is to be received, not owned, not manufactured. We are designed not to be our own joy factories, but to be joy receivers and passers on. So joy, I'm going to say just simply this way, and I hope I get there, is a visit. Joy is something that visits us. Third premise will be this. That joy, because it's a visitor, because it exists in a store elsewhere, not a manufactured thing for us to be owned, because of that, joy itself is consummated in its sharing. The idea of consummated, the idea that it is in its fullness, 
The joy ain't joy if you're keeping it to yourself. That's the kind of point we're going to make. So let's look at each of these premises first. Joy, the baseline affect of the world. There are so many places to go for this. We just heard from John chapter 1 that when Jesus comes into the world, it is the fullness of God being on display. We have seen his glory. Well, what is the glory of Jesus like? What is the glory of God like when it visits the world? And then we read on. Isaiah 55 told us that when the word which was born and went forth, when it goes into the world, it will accomplish its purpose. Well, what is the thing for which it was sent, according to verse 11, Isaiah 55? The thing that was purpose, the thing for which it was sent, was so that the people of God would go out in joy. For you shall go out in joy. The mountains are going to do something. What is the purpose for which the word came? To reveal that the mountains desire to and will break forth into singing. There is a kind of, what's the opposite of, of, of energy that's in motion? You guys remember this from seventh grade? Is kinetic the one that's moving, that's doing something? And then there's like stored energy or something? Potential. A potential energy. <laughs> All right. We got there. We got there. Now you just know my seventh grade brain over the last couple of days. I just was done. I was like, it's stored energy or something. Potential energy. The word goes forward. Jesus comes because, and I think this is the point here, because there is a potential energy in the universe. There is something waiting to break free. There is a pulled rubber band waiting for the prick of the coming of the Son of God. The question becomes, what is unleashed? What is unleashed in this potential energy of the world? And I would submit to you that what Isaiah is trying to say is that when the word comes forward, Joy is unleashed. Rejoicing, exaltation is unleashed. Luke chapter 2. What do the angels say? What are the angels excited about as they come? I'm going to start reading in verse 8. In the same regions, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news that will be for all the people. I hope you stop me and you say, no, I insist. Read it again. Because what do the angels declare is not just good news that will be for all the people, but they add a qualifier, the great qualifier of all the potential energy of the universe. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people built into the experience of the world. And I would say that built into the experience of receiving this Jesus who has come is great joy. The angels saw an unbreakable connection between the announcement of the news and where it leads. They could not, I believe, have imagined proclaiming a message something like this. Behold, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great solemnity. That goes against the entire nature of the world. Good news, when you get it, is good because it elicits the great joy response. 
Well, you might say, who's it for? It's for all the people. All human beings stamped with the image of God were designed for this call and response. The call of the God of the universe ruling over all things and bringing all things into consummation in Jesus, and then everyone responding in great joy. That's the call and response of the universe. I'm going to go backwards in Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 35. I'm just going to read this to you, and I'm going to show you that the great prophets of God's people, the writers of Scripture, those faithful to proclaim His heart, His word, His warnings, that when they start to pontificate on the way the world will be, I want you to note the kind of words that come out. I'm just going to start in the first verse of Isaiah 35. And we could pick many places, many of the prophets, major and minor, Certainly many passages in Isaiah. We've already read from Isaiah 55. We've heard from the Psalms this morning already. This is the 35th chapter of Isaiah. This is the perceived future. The expected future. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall, be, Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. <laughs> Sorry. He will come and save you. Now, what's going to happen in response to the saving? That sounds like good news up through verse 4. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Now that's a promise. I don't know if you feel that in your soul, but that's a good, that's a good promise. Even your foolishness won't be. Wow. Verse 9, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And what? Verse 10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Joy is expulsive. It pushes things out. Sorrow flees when joy comes. Sighing runs and races away when joy comes. The point here is that Isaiah is pointing to an inevitable future. And we could take a long time to discuss the what of that future. We could say, wow, there's... 
no lion there, and there's no ravenous beasts, and there's holiness, and there is foolish proof walking. There's a lot of what in the future kingdom that is absolutely worth discussing. But if I asked you, how is it experienced? What do the people feel? How do they speak? How do they sing? Well, there's only one answer. Joy. And it's not incidental. It's not coincidental. Joy is the baseline affect of the world. When all things are restored, when peace has come, when justice has been done, when hope is had by all, meaning it's been fulfilled, there is an experience, a sense, an emotion, a feeling, however you want to get at this. I want to say as many words as possible to know the roundness, the fullness of this idea. How is it experienced? The answer is joy, and it can be no other. This means... That Christmas is one of the greatest tools that we have to fight against one of the lies of the universe, which is essentially this, that God is keeping you from happiness. That if you could just get out from underneath his thumb, if you could just loosen the rules, if you could just be left alone, oh, how happy you would be. This is the lie at the center of all lies. Christmas is a declaration that the baseline, the way things ought to be, the way things will be, is joy. My grandfather used to tell me that singing was his weapon against his sadness because he would always be singing. He would take anything and turn it into a song. I didn't know any of the songs, so for all I know, they weren't real songs. I guess it would be impressive either way. But if I said something like, oh, look at the cornfield over there, he'd be like, oh, high and tall the cornfield goes. Yellow, yellow, yellow in my belly. I don't know. Like like some, it was better than that, the way he'd sing, but it was a song. It was the, this was the normal soundtrack of his life. He hummed, he sang, he walked around. And one day I just said to him, Grandpa, why do you sing so much? Everything I say it comes out in a song. And he thought for a little while and he said, well, I guess, Lancey, I find that it's a lot harder to be sad when I'm singing. Now, some of you, I know you're artsy people and you write because of the laments of your soul. And you say, oh, he doesn't understand art. I know there's a place for lament and singing. So don't take my grandfather as the, the answer to all things. But the point is essentially this. Lament has an expiration date. Joy does not. There is a baseline affect of the world. What kind of experience will the people of God have eternally? Everlasting joy. Now let's talk about this because you may say to yourself, well, I have a joyless experience. I'm not the most joyful person And it feels like a job to be joyful. Now, like most commands of God, it's okay if you feel that because I think Scripture actually commands joy. There's a biting critique given by Moses to the people of God in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, it says this, 
You, because you did not fulfill the commands of God joyfully, therefore, list of consequences. Joyful obedience to God is an actual command. How could that be commanded if it's not to be the baseline effect of the world? So you say to yourself, well, why would God command something like this that's so impossible for us to do all the time and feels like this job and we can't manufacture and we live in a fallen world? Well, I would say like most commands of God, they are good in themselves, especially when they lead us to Jesus. When they teach us our lack and lead us to the source or the fountain of joy, then they've done exactly what they ought to do. So, first premise was that joy is the baseline affect of the world. The second premise ought to be that joy is a visit. It's sourced somewhere else. This is to keep us from the mistake, then, of being happy, seal-like people in order to prove to ourselves or to perform for others or to grasp at an impressiveness to God because we know He has commanded joy. The idea is this instead. Joy is sourced in Jesus. God Himself is a source of joy such that He can give everlasting joy on the head of the people who have it. And this, I believe, is why there is both simultaneously an understanding of joy and a constant longing for it, a sense that it's lost. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of what I mean by this. Joy is something that often is only understood in the middle of the experience. One can imagine themselves being happy in the future. I love steak. I'm cooking the steak. I'm imagining a future bliss. I can imagine an expectation of happiness in the eating of the steak. So we have a sort of lower level of this, but what I would call joy, the kind of thing where you're struck by something funny such that tears run down your face. The kind of moment when you're in the middle of the singing with your friends on the way to the football game, and the windows are rolled down, and the great song comes on, and everyone just erupts at the same time, and then that line comes with the thunder roll, and then like the, and everyone just looks at each other in the eyes, and you're singing the thing, and you realize there in that moment you've been given a gift that you couldn't have manufactured. Because if someone would have said to you, if your buddy would have said to you, all right, everybody, here's the itinerary for the night, 6.52, we're going to get in my truck. We're going to be coming around the corner on the curb. The sun will be setting. Uh, We're going to hear some good news on the radio. Then that song we love is going to come on. And I want everybody to look each other in the eyeballs. And I want you as loud as you can. What's the point there? He's trying to manufacture something, and it's ruined. But you know what's never ruined? It's the visits. There's a poem by the poet William Wordsworth. What's interesting is that the poem leads to lament. He's suffering, he suffered a loss and a grief, but the first line of the poem is surprised by joy. The next line he says, an impatient wind. That's what he calls it, an impatient wind, something that has blown across his life. Surprised by Joy. This phrase was so meaningful to C.S. Lewis that he wrote 
at least a portion, a partial autobiography titled by the same phrase, surprised by joy. And when asked about his desire for heaven, and in fact, I would say that he would attribute it in some measure how he became a Christian, was this idea that he had been visited at moments by joy and had, it had stirred something in him, a desire to search for this place, this feeling, this affect. So he borrows Wordsworth phrase, this idea surprised by joy. Here he writes, of his childhood, and he describes this unexplained visit. Not mere happiness, but some kind of delight sourced somewhere else that comes into his soul. He said this experience, I call it joy. Animal land was not imaginative. He's been describing something else of his childhood. He said, but certain other experiences were. The first is itself the memory of a memory. I stood once beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day, and there arose within me without warning. You see where he's going here? Without warning. He couldn't have manufactured it. And as if from a depth not of years but of centuries, the memory of that early morning at the old house. So note the joy connection he's making here. He's saying that one day I'm outside and I'm walking through, and he's visited by a memory of a moment when he was visited by Joey. He says, There was a memory of an early morning at the old house when my brother had brought his toy garden into the nursery. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation that came over me. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden, giving the full ancient meaning to enormous, may come somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? And before I knew even what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse had been withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again. Or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. In a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. The quality that has been common to these experiences is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call this joy. It must be distinguished from happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has one characteristic and one only in common with those other things, with happiness and pleasure. And that is this fact. This is what Lewis says about joy. This fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. And he says, I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it, anyone who has tasted joy, would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures of the world. But then again, and here's the point of the premise, the line, he says, joy is never in our power. But pleasure often is. And so he makes a distinction. In fact, he thinks that at the heart of all Mankind and all the fallen world that we are all grasping for this greater visit of joy, a kind of delight and pleasure that it is greater than all satisfactions combined. And so we substitute often with pleasure hunting. But the point made here is that joy is never in our power. Joy is most joyful when it is received. 
It doesn't have to always be unexpected. Of course, you can perhaps note patterns. I think you can pray for these things. The Spirit of God moves this in our souls. But ultimately, joy is not something to be owned. It's not something to be canned. It is deeper than, more powerful, more lasting, more moving than mere moments of happiness. This does not mean that we should give up all moments of happiness or pleasure. There are God-ordained pleasures in the world. But the point is is that all of those things are merely pointing to some greater motivation, some greater desire. And if you've experienced it, you will want it again. The great philosopher Andy Bernard once said, he said, I wish there was a way to know it was the good old days before they were the good old days. What he's saying is, I'm recalling an experience. I'm recalling a feeling. I'm recalling a delight. I'm recalling some moments. And he wishes that he could snap and they would be here, or at least he would be aware of them in the moment. I think that is a great reality of our experience of joy. The sense is essentially this. God's good gift to those who are made in his image is that he visits us with joy. And these visits of joy, these moments in life of delight, of almost a sense of of freeing happiness, are given to us so that we might long for our future reality when everlasting joy will be upon our heads. So joy is to be received. Joy is to be something that we ought to have our eyes open to, our hands out for. I believe that we can set our hearts toward an experience of joy and say, God, please bring these moments, but all of them designed so that our affections go back to the giver. There's one final reality of joy. And again, in the same way that it's not ours, we can't manufacture it, we can't just schedule it for tomorrow, I'd like 17 minutes of blissful joy at 9 a.m. In the same way, because it is not ours not to be manufactured, we are at best stewards of it, and stewards, to be good stewards of joy, is to pass it along. That's the third premise. That joy, perhaps you are not experiencing joy in its fullness because you have become a, a sort of a dammed up river. So I'm going to go back to Wordsworth for a minute. He starts the line of his poem, surprised by joy. He calls it an impatient wind. But then the very next line, because I believe it's part and parcel of joy, he says, I turned to pass it along. I turned for the passage. I turned for its transfer. That's the idea that he's saying. And then it turns to grief because his point is is that he turns, he's surprised by a joy, he turns to share it, and the person that he would have shared it with is not there. So he says, oh, with whom? With whom shall I share? And then he talks about the ways that joys, when they visit him, remind him of the loss that he's had. 
But there's something in that instinct that I believe is true. How do you know when you're experiencing fullness of joy, maybe not mere pleasure? And I don't say mere in a derogatory way. I I wish you pleasure. I hope that there are holy kinds of pleasure all over your life. But I think one way it can be distinguished from joy is this instinct. When you know that you're a mere steward, when you realize in fullness that I've been visited and therefore this needs to pass through me, it's not to be stored. Maybe I'd ask you a question like this. When was the last time you were moved to happiness and delight in something such that your nearly first and immediate instinct is, who can I share this with? I'm going to go to a very base level. I'm really getting down in the weeds here. I believe that the entirety of the meme economy is based in some measure on this kind of instinct. In other words, someone sees something and immediately says, oh, that's good. But they don't just say, finder, <laughs> computer, file, things I delight in, and they, just, they don't just leave it there, right? They share. Click, link, share, repost, retweet, retalk. I don't even know what they do on these things. Gram or whatever you're going to do. You have to share it because in the sharing of the joy is consummation of joy itself. I'm trying to think of the last times that I was moved to something like this. It was one of the greatest gifts of the friendship I had with a, with a best friend for a few decades is that we had a sort of understanding that whenever we were visited by joy in the world, if you ever experienced this good gift, this sense that was to stir along you for the future, that we would share it with one another. So I would get continual little moments throughout the week of a call, a, a picture, a random picture of the back, back third of a page of a book sitting out of the side of a coffee shop with three lines and circles and exclamation points. And I would know, oh, here is a, here's a passage to joy. Someone is sharing this with me. And I sensed the same thing. So when I saw some delightful deal, if I knew that st- if, if Curry hit six threes and he was coming down for heat check time, I knew exactly who I was going to text because I was delighting in this NBA game. And I'm like, oh my goodness, who needs to know? And I text and I say, you've got to watch. When I heard the song or I was struck by the line or there was the joke with the punchline that just had to be shared... In fact, I think other people, I think you know you have a stewardship of joy to share too because sometimes you hear the perfect joke and then you know how bad you feel when you screw it up. Why do you feel bad for screwing it up? Because you think to yourself, oh man, this thing was given to me and I'm just passing it along here and I fumbled it. I promise it was pristine when it was given to me. When it was given to me, it elicited something in me that was amazing and I wish you would have had that, but I, I, I said the punchline first and I just, I'm so sorry. I, it doesn't work this way and then you just give them a jumble of parts, right? You're like, here's a battery on the floor there. I think it'll work if you just... You know you're supposed to be a steward of joy. And I think this is why The waves clap. This is why the hills sing. This is why 
people declare. This is why preaching and teaching is built into gospel ministry. It's why the angels come to declare. I want you to notice a couple things about the ministry of Jesus. John chapter 15, which is Jesus reflecting on his love and his affection for those who are abiding in him. He says this in verse 11 of John 15. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Interesting. Jesus says in verse 11 of John 15, I have spoken to you. He has stewarded and passed along. John 17, verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I love these words in John 15 and 17, the idea of full. One time I did a Bible word study. It was like one of the first time I ever understood what a, what a Greek and English like concordance kind of thing was. And I went to look up the word full, and I was like, what does full mean? How can you be full of joy? And the word that came out of it that I loved in English was the word cram, something that's crammed full. The idea of I'm filling my dog's water bowl and it's coming up over the edges. It's crammed. There's no more that could go in there. So much so that it explodes over the edges. Joy is like that. You'll know you have joy when it doesn't quite fit in yourself. So that it flows out to others. Jesus said, I came to give an expectation of joy and I had to speak these things. I had to be shared I came to declare these things because joy is an overflowing thing and my joy is overflowing to the world. And my greatest desire for those who follow me is that they would receive this joy. In 1 John, we hear the same kind of language. It makes me think, oh yeah, yeah, these these disciples, these apostles, they got it. 1 John chapter 1. He's about to write letters. John ends up writing three, these epistles of of John. Of course, he also has a revelation for us as well. But I'm going to read the first four verses. It's not going to be on the, the screens, I don't think. But listen to the experience that John had as a follower of Jesus. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. I want you to pause pause for a moment, and I want you to note that he explains this in experiential terms. Having met Jesus and known him and followed him is like having gone on a vacation. Oh, tell me what it was like. Oh, the cliffs were sheer and tall and beautiful, and the sun glistened through a hole on the side, and you could hear the bubbling of a brook near you. And when you touched it with your foot to go across, it was cold and stung so that you sensed it in its power. You know how someone describes something like that? This is how John's describing his experience with Jesus. He says, we've heard of him and we've seen him with our eyes. We looked upon him. We touched with our hands. He goes on in verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and now made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then verse 4. The first chapter of 1 John. He says, And we are writing these things to you 
We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What a phrase. Do you note the little, do you note the, the odd word there? He doesn't say we are writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. I think he believes their joy is going to be complete. He says we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. John has tapped into something, and that is this, that joy is consummated in its sharing. That the act of receiving a delightful act of joy, then wrestling with it and holding it and being impacted by it, it is not completed until it has been shared and passed along. So I'll just make the most obvious conclusion of all time. This is why Christmas is best enjoyed and perhaps only enjoyed by caroling. This is why Christmas is best enjoyed, if not perhaps only enjoyed, by reading again the Christmas story. This is why Christmas is best enjoyed and perhaps only enjoyed in the giving of gifts. Because your joy is consummated in the passing along of these things. Don't short-circuit your experience of joy by holding it to yourself. In fact, the history of the church, essentially, some of our best and brightest, some of our greatest poets, our best songwriters, our most imaginative people, our most artsy people, they have spent considerable amount of time saying, oh man, I'm digging into and I'm seeing the delights of Jesus, especially at Christmas time. The fact that the The world is contained in this baby who is there reasonless or whatever we sang earlier. And then they figure out how to share it. If you would have asked me to share the beauty and the joy of Christmas by decorating this room, I I don't know if I could have done it. I I would have been like, um, paint the walls green or something. But instead... M. Kitchens, a few people helping her along. She says, oh, I can imagine this. I can imagine this. You know what it's like? You know what the beauty of Christmas is like? It's like beautiful brass bells. And it's wreaths and greens and reds. And it's, it's, it's this image, this picture, so that these are an attempt to say to you in your senses, come in. Receive joy. If you asked me to sing concerning Jesus, joy to the world, I would get it out happily probably with some verve, but it wouldn't sound as beautifully as the band and Daniel taking time every week to say, how can we describe this and how can we, can we sing it out loud? I'm getting Christmas cards from you. You're thinking to yourself, the joy of Christmas has been given to our family. It's amazing. How could I share this? I know I'm going to put a bow, bow right on the top of my girl's head. Because when then when we take that picture, everyone who sees that now, the joy has been translated straight to them. They get it. They start to get it. So, where do we go? What do we do? How do we steward these things? Well, maybe I would just encourage you like this. When lament comes, which is fitting as a response to loss and grief, and when you note and are tempted by the lie that the world really is kind of dour and not worth it anyway... May you remember that there is a through-line affect of all of history. 
that joy is your inheritance. Joy is your right. Joy is the end game for you. Let's declare that to one another. I want to encourage you as well to look for moments of joy. Pray for them. Say, Spirit of God, mark my days, not by my own spirit, but by yours. And the fruit of the Spirit, one of the great gifts of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So visit me, and visit me often. Then finally, I might say, join us in sharing this joy of Christmas. Pray the prayers, and sing the songs, and read the scriptures, And come to the service and hold the candle and say, yes, light. Light is is going to be shared. Because your joy is made complete in the giving of it away. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing yourself in the Son. And what we see through Jesus is that you